Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Open your Bibles. I hope you bring your Bible. This is a church that reads from the Bible. 2 Timothy. It's interesting, we just finished a study of the book of James, probably one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. And this is one of the last, it's the last letter of Paul, not of the New Testament. There are some after this as far as the the time frame. But this is the last letter from Paul. The title of my message today could almost be the theme of this entire series, Coaching from the Finish Line. I begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring or longing to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. I want you to imagine for a moment you're watching, or maybe you're even going to run, in a marathon, 26.2 miles. The only way I would be in one is to imagine it. (laughs) But let's just say that you're watching it. And you see all of these people lined up to run in this 26-mile race. And you notice one man who looks like he's in his late 60s. And he actually looks older than that because of all the marks on his body. And you start to think to yourself, why in the world is he even here? He may die running in this marathon. You're wondering, what's the purpose of this? But as the gun sounds, you're amazed that he stays with the crowd. And as you are at the finish line when this race is over, you see this old man is in front. And you're expecting him when he crosses the finish line to collapse in a heap. But instead of doing that, he stops and he runs back toward the racers. And he runs up beside a young man in his 30s who's about to quit. And he says... You can make it, dude. Come on. You're almost there. You can finish this race. Now, if that old man was going to give a seminar on how he trained, I guarantee you I'd be there. Or what his secret was. I'm not making this story up. At least physically, there was not a marathon. But spiritually speaking, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Paul is probably in his late 60s, 66 to 68 years old. He spent most of his life serving the Lord ever since his call on the road to Damascus, and now he knows he's about to die. 
He knows this is going to be the last letter he writes unless God intervenes. And he writes to a young man who's been in Ephesus for about three to five years. He's been the pastor of the church at Ephesus, Ephesus, and he is in his late 30s. He's probably 36 to 38 years old. His name is Timothy. And at the time of this writing, Paul being there in prison and, and Timothy in Ephesus, at some point between 1 Timothy, the first letter written to Timothy, to tell him how to run the church at Ephesus, it's about church order, sometime between the first and second letters of Timothy, Paul sees Timothy. We don't know exactly where, but he alludes to it in other passages of Scripture that he actually met They met again, and now they haven't seen each other. Paul is now in prison. And this letter is basically an instruction letter to Timothy to carry on the kingdom work. It's a clear, direct, demanding exhortation from Paul to Timothy. It calls for the best that Timothy or any other man or woman could give. It calls for the best to keep the ministry Alive to keep it expanding. But what you must understand underneath all of these commands is a very fervent feelings from Paul because he's concerned not only about the mission itself, but he's concerned about Timothy because it, he knows Timothy well. He knows his strength. He knows his weaknesses. And there are hints that Timothy may be getting discouraged or at a weak point. And so we're going to look at the last letter, what I call it. And today, it's like Paul's at the finish line, but he's coaching from the finish line. Hey, you can make it. Come on, come on, come on. Now, he begins with a typical salutation, but in the salutation, there's more to it than what you might realize or what you might just skim over because you see the godly authority of Paul. You see Paul's apostleship. He sits in a cold, dark prison cell facing certain death at the command of Nero, the Roman emperor. He's preoccupied with one thing, the movement, the forward movement of the gospel and the kingdom of God. That's all that's on his mind. Now, you'll notice several things about the way Paul describes himself. I call them his credentials. First of all, you see he has a commission from God, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is authorized. He's been commissioned by God. He didn't pick it. A committee didn't choose him. He didn't inherit it. A bunch of men did not get together and tell him that he was an apostle. He was chosen by the Lord himself because he describes other places. For example, Galatians 1.1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And just like a coach giving instructions, I haven't gone through and counted all of the imperatives in this letter But let me just read a few of them to him, to you. All of these are commands. You're going to see these as we go through this letter. Kindle afresh the gift of God. Do not be ashamed of the Lord. Retain the standard. Guard the treasure. Be strong. Entrust to faithful men. Suffer hardship. Remember Jesus Christ. Remind them. Solemnly charge them. 
Be diligent. Avoid worldly empty chatter. Flee youthful lusts. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Continue in the things you've learned. Preach the word. Be ready. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Be sober in all things. It sounds like a coach or a general telling the troops, this is what you're going to do. Paul had that authority. He was commissioned by God. He spoke for the Lord. He's like a general speaking orders to the army. And when he spoke, God spoke through him. And Timothy listened. Yeah, he had the authority. But he's also had the call of God. It says in verse 1, by the will of God. He was called of God. This was the cause of his ministry. I sometimes think we don't realize the 180-degree turn that Paul made. He hated Christians before he became a Christian. Hated them. Some pretty interesting movies from time to time. I watched one not too long ago just called Saul. And, and it showed how much he hated Christians. And I know there's a lot of liberty taken in movies, but you get an idea of how much he hated and what a radical turn it was when he came to know Jesus as his Savior. Nobody believed him. I want to tell you, God has a call on people's lives. He may have a call on your life. I can remember as a 15-year-old, God had a call on my life to go into the ministry. I preached my first sermon when I was 15 years old. It was a lot shorter than this one will be. (laughs) He should have been there. I think back of those poor people at Westside Baptist Church. Thank you for enduring that and encouraging me. But he definitely had a call of God on his life. But then you also see in Paul's writing the compassion of God. Don't miss this phrase. Most of the time when he writes a letter, he says grace and peace to you. And it's always in that order. Grace is always there before the peace comes. It's not peace and grace. But here he puts grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. That phrase speaks volumes. Grace. It comes from God to the undeserving. Grace is giving something to people they don't deserve. You and I did not deserve salvation. We didn't deserve forgiveness. But by God's grace, he gave that to us. Listen to what he says in the first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace refers to God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. It's by God's grace that you and I are even able to be saved. Amen? Amen. We're we're in God's family. That grace is amazing. Somebody ought to write a song about that. (laughs) And then the word mercy. Mercy comes from God to the helpless. You see... Paul, again, 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. 
You see, mercy is God withholding what we deserve. And we deserve death and hell and, and punishment. See, grace gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy withholds what we do deserve. And as a result of that, peace. The peace of God comes to the enemies of God through Christ's atoning death. We at one time were enemies of God, and now we are at peace with God. In fact, Paul declares it in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified, that is put right with God, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Peace is the tranquility of the heart that says, I know I'm right with God. And when you die one day, you don't have to be afraid to stand before God. You don't have to be afraid of the return of Christ. He's given you grace, mercy, and peace with God. And guess where that comes from? Notice that phrase. From, our, from God our Father and, Jesus, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Does it come from both? What does that mean? That means they're equal. It speaks of the deity of Christ. Anybody that tells you that Jesus is not God doesn't know the Scripture. You see, it comes from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. The triune one God. He equates the two as equal in deity. And Paul is wishing the best for Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, I want grace to cover your sins. I want mercy to override your misery and peace to dominate your life. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from a denomination. It doesn't come from joining a church. It doesn't even come from being baptized. It comes from having a peace relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, all of a sudden, the, the letter changes. It gets more personal. And Paul shows the genuine appreciation for Timothy. Timothy was Paul's apprentice, so to speak. Now, I've got to tell you, in studying, getting ready for this, It's been very emotional and convicting for me. I told my wife, Laura, I said, I've had, had to ask God to forgive me for any whining I ever did as a pastor. Folks, I don't, I don't think you understand and I hope you appreciate what Paul has done and what he did and the salvation. To me, the, the radical change in Paul's life is a, is a testimony and a proof of the resurrection because only God could have changed this man's life to do what he did, and I'm going to show you. When he wrote this letter, he was in the Mamertine prison in Rome. I've got a picture of it I'll show you. 
What's remaining of it is a dungeon in the ground. It's 30 feet, 30 to 35 feet in diameter with a hole at the top that's a little larger than that, a manhole in the street. If you look at the top right-hand corner, that's equivalent to the upper level in the drawing on the left. And then if you look right in the middle of that picture, you see a hole in the floor. At the bottom, you see a light coming through that hole. That's where they drop prisoners down into the Mamertine prison. Now, Rome didn't put people in prison to punish them. They put people in prison when they were going to execute them. Very seldom was, you know, like we have people that serve time, they're incarcerated. Very seldom did Rome do that. They had other ways of punishing them. But usually when, they, when you got dropped in this hole, it was death row. And what's even bad, you can't see it in that picture, but in the bottom section, there is some kind of old door. The guides will tell you that that door was used as part of the execution because this prison, this dungeon, ran parallel or right beside the city sewage area. And when they put 30 to 35 people in that hole, that's about all they could handle. They'd open the door. Sewage would run in and drown these men and then wash them out. They would close the door and drain it, and then more people were dropped in the hole. Paul was dropped down in that hole. Now, Paul did not die by drowning. He was made a public spectacle later, and I'll share with you just a second about that, but he was beheaded, we think, most people believe, by Nero, the emperor. And the Romans basically said, we will not tolerate the teaching of Jesus Christ nor anyone who represents him. And so at the end of his life, in all his ministry, he's now in the Mamertine prison alone. But if that wasn't bad enough, let me read you about Paul just a second. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 and following. Paul writes about some of the experiences he's had serving the Lord. Listen to this. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten five times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I spent in the deep, in the water. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. It's not the first time he's been in prison. He was put in prison in Jerusalem, in Caesarea by the sea, in Philippi. And 
five or six years earlier before this was in prison in Rome, but it wasn't quite as bad, but it was almost like house arrest where people could come and go and see him. And he, during that time, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the wonderful little letter to his friend Philemon. But in A.D., 64, July the 19th, a fire broke out in Rome and destroyed 10 of the 14 districts in Rome. It raged for six days and seven nights, flaring sporadically for an additional three days, and rumors swirled everywhere that Emperor Nero had set fire to Rome so that he could rebuild it to his liking. Well, he tried to squelch that rumor, and it wasn't going to be squelched, so he tried to lay blame on someone else, and he picked the people in two of the districts that were not burned. Christians. See, Christians then, he blamed it on them and said that they burned it down, and Rome didn't like Christians anyway because they supposedly hated people. You know why they said that? Because Christians would not participate in what the Romans would do. Because Jesus Christ had changed their life. They wouldn't follow those false gods. They wouldn't be involved in all the orgies and all the other stuff that was going on. And when Nero blamed them, an avalanche of animosity followed. And they began picking up Christians. Fed them to lions. And they finally picked up Paul who was the leading spokesman for the Christian faith. He was taken to Rome. He was dropped in the Mamertine prison. But he was taken out. And he was publicly executed so that Rome could show them. Now, with all of that, you would have expected him to write... Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Instead of feeling sorry for himself, he's thinking about the young man, Timothy. He's following him. And when he thinks about him, there's several things that come to the surface quickly. First of all is gratitude. I'm thankful for you. Verse 3, I thank God. And he skipped down a little bit as I constantly remember you. It's encouraging to know that someone can appreciate what God has done through you and is thankful to God for you. I know this is a stupid question, but are you thankful for some people in your life? Do you, four of you aren't, do you, do you, uh, I know where the word murmuring comes from. Do you thank God for people in your life? Really, I mean, and when's the last time you told them, thank, I thank God for you in my life? That's what he was telling Timothy. I thank God for you, for your friendship. It's nice to know that when others think of you that you're not thought of as a complaint or a grief, but gratitude. And folks, we need to learn to be grateful for people that are in our life. Next, we see Paul's faithfulness. I'm praying for you. 
I constantly pray for you. That's the same word he used for the Thessalonians when he said, pray without ceasing. It means continually. I, I think of you often, and I continually pray for you. I, I constantly remind God of your needs. That word for prayer is petitions. I constantly remind God that you need this, and you need this help. And he constantly prayed for them. When's the last time you prayed for somebody in your life? You ought to be praying for your children. You ought to be praying for your grandchildren. You ought to be praying for your neighbors, praying for the people in your Sunday school class. Faithfulness. Don't miss Paul's missing fellowship. I want to spend time with you, verse 4. Folks, you and I don't see this in the English but the word for longing is a very intense word. This, this yearning, greatly desiring, longing, epipatheo, means to have a strong desire to yearn. It's a compound word, which means the deepest longing, the hurting in your heart to see somebody. He said, Timothy, I want to see you so badly. When I think about this, I wonder how it would be to spend your whole life in absolute, total self-sacrifice, giving yourself up for a people so they might come to know Jesus and then be literally alone at the end. God forgive us for whining. I had to walk a little bit further into the building today. <laughs> it's convicting. We also see Paul's empathy. I know how you feel. Being mindful of your tears. Sometimes Paul, some say this could have a dual meaning or either or, but some say that Paul's referring back to the time it's recorded in the book of Acts when they had to part and Timothy literally cries. And even some of the elders of the church in Acts 20 verse 37, they were all over Paul hugging and weeping because they, didn't, well, they wouldn't see him again. But then there are some who say that this means that Timothy was experiencing a time of difficulty in his, mis in his ministry and it had led him to tears. And anyone who spent any time in ministry understands that sometimes the going brings tears. Either way, Paul said, I know how you feel. Jesus wept out of compassion for those he loved and anyone who was taking up their cross and following him. Paul said, I know how you feel. Aren't you glad that you have some people in your life that know how you feel? And let me just put a commercial in here for you. Let me tell you, in a church that has grown to the size of our church, if you don't take the time to somehow find a life group that you feel like you're comfortable in, it doesn't matter what age they are, you're not ever going to have a group of people around you that will feel what you feel. Amen. You'll get lost in the crowd. That's, that's the biggest fear I have, that people will be lost in the shuffle. 
Last night, I got invited, Laura and I got invited to join with part of a life group because one of their members and spouse left this morning to go to another part of Texas for cancer treatment. There were six or eight couples in there praying with that couple before they left today. If you're not in a life group, you're not in a Sunday school class, a small group, or whatever you call it, I'm going to tell you, you're missing a blessing. These people know your name. They know how you feel. They'll cry with you. They'll laugh with you. And Paul also mentions a blessing. He said, you, you're joy to me. Paul saw Timothy as one of the blessings that God had given him. He said, Timothy, every time I think about you, you bring joy to my heart. But to see you again would bring joy to my heart. Are there any people in your life that are a blessing to you? Do they bring joy in your life? When's the last time you told them? It's the last time you told somebody in your Sunday school class or your, where you work or wherever it might be, people can be, are a blessing to you and they bring joy to your heart. Don't take it for granted that you'll see them again. In Timothy's life, Paul wanted to encourage him, to strengthen him, to lift him up from the pit of fear and despair and to reassure him that he's still being used in God's kingdom. And this is a coach who bears the scars on him. And if anybody could sit in prison and cry, it would have been Paul. People had forsaken him because he was in prison. They were embarrassed. He was in chains. He's in chains for the gospel. Instead of all of that, he's writing Timothy. He said, Timothy, you're such a blessing to me. I really want to see you again. I pray for you constantly. And then on top of that, he gives a very gracious affirmation of Timothy. I call it Paul's assertion. He said, when I call to remembrance in verse 5, when all the memories I have. Folks, we have so many wonderful memories of what God has done, don't we? And some of you I have precious memories with because I was with you when certain things happened. And, and he's saying, I, I call to remembrance. But then, Timothy, there's two things that stand out when I remember you. The first one is your genuine faith. That word genuine means sincere, without hypocrisy, no, nothing blemished in it. And in 1 Timothy 1, 2, he calls him a true child. He said, your faith is genuine. It's real. You're the real deal. <laughs> it's easy to fake people out, isn't it? I read this in the Reader's Digest. I was attending a junior stock show when a grand champion lamb owned by a little girl was being auctioned. As the bids reached $5 per pound, the little girl standing beside the lamb in the arena began to cry. 
At $10 a pound, the tears were streaming down her face, and she clasped her arms tightly around the lamb's neck. The higher the bids, the more she cried. Finally, a local businessman bought the lamb for more than $1,000, but then announced that he was donating it to the little girl. The crowd applauded and cheered. Months later, I was judging some statewide essays when I came across one from a girl who told about the time her grand champion lamb had been auctioned. The prices began to get so high during the bidding that I started to cry from happiness. She continued with, the man who bought the lamb for so much more than I ever dreamed returned the lamb to me. And when I got home, Dad barbecued the lamb and it was delicious. (laughs) Now that is a story of fake love. But I want to tell you, it's possible that sometimes we act like we care, but we need to have a genuine compassion for other people. Paul said, your your faith is genuine. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians. Oh, I was baptized as a kid. My parents were Christians. I was raised this or whatever. But I want to tell you, how do you know when it's genuine? How, How will you know when a person's really a Christian? We don't have a mark on us. God didn't put a mark on us. It'd be nice. He said, you're going to know them by their fruit and by their love for one another. Genuine faith. And then don't miss this. He said, I also remember your godly family. Timothy had been blessed to grow up in a Christian home. His mother and grandmother were both believers who, according to chapter 3, verse 15, as we see later, taught Timothy the Scriptures at a young age. Lois and Eunice were led to Christ by Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey to Galatia. They were Jewish women. Timothy's dad evidently had already died. He was a Gentile. But these ladies came to faith in Christ by Paul and Barnabas' preaching on the first missionary journey. And by the time that Paul comes around the second time in Acts chapter 16, they've led a young man by the name of Timothy to Christ. And so Paul always called him my true son because he led his mom and grandmother to the Lord and they led Timothy to the Lord and Paul said, you're, you're my true son in the faith. I've heard a lot of testimonies in my day and I'm not discounting any of them. Please don't misunderstand me. And I thank God just that people who've been addicted to drugs and alcohol or have walked in the gutters of life and the wild side of life and God struck them like lightning and got a hold of them and changed their life. And I am not discounting that at all, but I always thought, you know, I was raised in a Christian home had a drug problem. My parents drug me to church at an ugly age. <laughs> they taught me the truths of the Bible. They taught me the Bible stories. 
And when I compare that conversion to somebody else, it seems kind of boring, but I'm here to tell you today that the greatest testimony anyone could ever give is that they were blessed to have Christian parents. Earlier today, uh, the Hearst, these little children that have been brought into that family don't know the blessing yet of having a dad and a mom that love Jesus. Becoming more and more rare today. But folks, I want to tell you, I know children can grow up, they make their own choices, and sometimes just like the perfect father in the Garden of Eden, children rebel. But I thank God that I was raised in a Christian home. I thank God that the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart at an early age, and I thank God that I was spared a lot of heartache that a lot of people go through before they come to know Jesus. Don't underestimate and don't ever take for granted or don't ever discount your Christian home. The best gift we can give our children and grandchildren is not land or a house or securities or a university education. The best gift we can give to our children is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't give it to them, but we can lead them to that place. But you can't do that if you don't know who Jesus is. And you can't do that if you're not saved yourself, if you're not forgiven, if you're not born again yourself. You can't do that. And folks, if you don't know Jesus, I'm just incredibly amazed that Paul, even though he's about to die and he's in filthy circumstances, he's more concerned about people coming to Christ than he is his own life. God's given you the opportunity to respond to Jesus today because of people like this who died because they saw the resurrected Jesus. He's real. And if you don't know Christ, let me tell you, you don't have peace. I can promise you that. If you don't know Jesus, there is no peace. There's no salvation. Would you bow your heads with me? I pray, Father, for those who need Jesus today. I pray, Father, that you would speak to their hearts to let them know how much you really do love them and want them and will forgive them and save them and give them life. And I ask you, Lord, to draw people to you. Lord, for those of us who've been Christians a long time, We're so sorry for complaining and whining, griping. Help us to be completely committed to the mission of seeing people come to you. I pray for people that need a church. If 
this is the place. <laughs> what a wonderful, wonderful, loving group of forgiven sinners this is. For those who need to be baptized, I pray you'd give them the fortitude to do what these this morning did, to profess you publicly before others. So Lord, I know that you are touching hearts today. Thank you for reminding us of the high price of salvation that not only came through Jesus Christ, but then was spread through the sacrifice of people like Paul. Help us to be that to other people. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message.